It is Friday, August the 20th here, uh, 12 p.m. here on the West Coast of the United States. My name is Arthur Asadurian. Thank you for joining us on Apologia Center uh, here on YouTube or wherever you might be listening this to or, or watching this on in the in the future. It might be that that might be very far into the future or not so far. I have an amazing guest with me. I'm just going to bring him onto the screen right here, uh, Dr. Paul Gould. Um, and uh, we'll just run through some some introductions and usually we, we go through our introductory notes then we jump into the subject um, is associate professor of philosophy and religion um, at um, remind me here why am I getting confused yeah, Palm Beach Atlantic, Palm University. Beach Atlantic University you got you guys are building a team there uh, an amazing uh, team of folks we'll yeah. talk about that in a little bit um, M, uh, your bachelor's degree is uh, from Miami University, um, and that's in Ohio. So that's right. kind of confusing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Miami University, Oxford, Ohio, not Miami, <laughs> Florida, where we are now. And uh, you have an MA uh, from Talbot uh, School of Theology and Philosophy, and uh, a PhD from Purdue, and that's in philosophy as well. Now... What we're gonna do is for, tell us tell us what your bachelor's degree is in, because uh, I think there's a unique story behind yeah. that and, and what happened with that. Okay, yeah. So um, my undergraduate degree is in uh, accounting, and I was actually a CPA right out of school, and then of course now I teach philosophy. So you might wonder how I got from being a CPA. Uh, to now teaching philosophy. And so, do you want me to tell tell a little bit about that? Yes, please. Yeah, so it's a great question. You know, I never, um, I never would have guessed when I graduated college. In fact, I said I can remember that senior year saying, "I'm never going to study again." I was just ready to be done and be a big, high-powered businessman. And so that's, of course, what I did uh, in accounting. But uh, so anyway, okay, I'll, I can tell this pretty succinctly. But um, God got a hold of our lives in college, myself and, and my wife. I wasn't married at the time, but now my wife, um, and changed our lives. I wasn't a Christian when I went to college, but I, I found Christ in college. And so we had, a, we had a huge heart for college students. So even though I graduated and was working as a CPA, I knew that we wanted to work with college students. I knew we wanted to be basically campus ministers. And so after uh, I got married to my wife, Ethel, uh, who was a student in Texas, I was a student in Ohio. We eventually uh, lived in the same city and got married in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, we knew that we wanted to go work as campus ministers because, again, we really we wanted to be with college students. We were so passionate about the life change that we found in Christ in college. And so began working uh, with crew. And there's where the story gets a little wild. Um, I noticed all these things early on in my evangelism. I, whenever I would go share with people about Jesus, I always went to the intellectuals or, or at least those who I who thought they were intellectuals. And I loved having conversations about the gospel, but in the context of ideas. And it just mm. awoke something within me. So that was one thing that I noticed about myself. I also noticed a second thing about um, our students, that they were basically Christianity was just getting maligned and, and, and beat up, you know, and, and, and our students were going to their classes and just being told that there's no credibility. Christianity is irrational. It's undesirable and things like that. And so that was a disconnect. And so what happened was we were, you know, as a campus minister, you're kind of a generalist where you're good at everything, but you're not excellent at anything. And so I just didn't have time to like pursue this. I call it a beach ball that surfaced in my life. And that beach ball 
was this love of learning. Like for the first time as a as an accounting undergrad, I'm like, what what is the truth about reality? And how do you make how do you do you defend the existence of God? And what about evolution or the problem of evil or divine hiddenness and all these questions? But because of this generalist hat, I didn't have time to pursue that passion, that beach ball. So I shoved it under the surface of my life. And as the metaphor suggests, that ball would continue to surface and I'd shove it under and it would continue to surface. And this happened for about three years. Um, finally, finally, that third year on staff with crew as a campus minister, I'm like, God, this beach ball isn't going away. I want to learn. I want to know. And there are two things that happened that year that put me on a path that lead to today. The first thing that happened was in a Bible study, I was leading a Bible study with a bunch of guys, and uh, we we're going through the Gospel of Luke. And in that Gospel, uh, there's a number of sort of benchmarks where the author, Luke, pauses and says something like, and Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, just kind of showing this methodical walk of Jesus toward the cross. One of those was in Luke 13, 31, 32, somewhere in there, I forget. But um, we're looking at that passage in Luke 13, one night, and Jesus says to the Pharisees about Herod, something like, you go tell that fox, Herod, that I will continue on toward Jerusalem until I reach my end. So it was one of those benchmark moments. And so here we have this claim that I will continue on until I reach my end, my goal, my telos, which was the cross. We're looking at this passage, and one of the students, Dave, in this study says, you know what? I bet you Christ was really passionate when he said that. And it kind of dawned on me <laughs> that he probably was passionate, and he was passionate in light of his end, his purpose, the thing that he had come for, which was the cross. And it was kind of like, in that moment, God spoke into my heart that I will be most passionate about the things of God as I understand my own unique telos or purpose. And so that's kind of like the first track that God laid to put me on this separate path that leads to, you know, a PhD in philosophy and teaching philosophy. So with that, I began to allow the beach ball to surface, uh, hover on the surface of my life, taught an apologetics class, learned some things about myself that I have abilities to communicate, learned some things about our students that they have real needs and desires to learn in apologetics. And um, that summer, the second track fell. Uh, I was now where, you know, every summer with crew, you go do these things called summer projects, basically these mission projects for a couple months. I was in Virginia Beach, still wrestling with God, wrestling with this beach ball, um, sitting in church one day in Virginia Beach, and somebody was sharing their testimony, and they shared this quote from this movie that's a different generation, but it's the movie Chariots of Fire. And in there, if you know the story, maybe you do, Arthur, there's the runner, Eric Liddell, who's an Olympian runner having a conversation with his sister who wants him to go be faithful to God, to be a missionary in China. And he says this quote of which this person shared in this church about running, where he says, when I run, I experience God's pleasure. It's kind of this famous quote. And I can remember thinking, like sitting in the church pew there, saying, God, what is it that when I do it, I experience your pleasure? And it was, again, this very clear, um, it, you know, the thing that I, when I experience God's pleasure, sharing the gospel in the context of ideas and the life of the mind. And it was kind of like God laid the second track down to say, you need to go be a niche player in the kingdom of God. And so from there, to, to compress the rest of the story, we um, did one more year uh, at Miami University where we are campus ministers, packed up our bags, went to Talbot School of Theology, did this philosophy degree, loved it. From there, did the PhD in philosophy, loved it even more. And there you just learn, you know, one of the, the beauties of being a grad student is you get to teach undergrads. And there it's like, <clears throat> I realized, oh, this is what I've been made for. Like my heart sings in the classroom, you know, that's what I've been made for. And so that's kind of where I discovered the gifting and uh, for teaching 
So fast forward all that, here we are. And last thing I'll say, and I'll turn it back to you. Uh, today, I'm super excited. Just got back from our first uh, group of cohort new students here at Palm Beach Atlantic. We're launching uh, actually a, a master's degree in philosophy, very much like the one that I did at Talbot. And it's just so exciting to see this dream come to fruition here where we're building another program, you know, that yeah, may it raise up many more people. So really excited for you guys over there. Yeah. I, I really am. Because I had, uh, and we didn't get to talk in detail, but we'll have the description of the school. I had Paul Copan on and um, we had the description. We have the description under, uh, it, sorry, we have the link to the school on the description there because I want to encourage folks, you know, for, for a while people would come over here to the West Coast uh, to go to Talbot and uh, obviously for the, for the faculty great I mean I love the program uh, and, uh, and and you guys are building a really really awesome faculty uh, there's a really nice team there and and you guys are doing a good job so we want to encourage folks um, uh, nothing against our uh, our Biola friends but right like uh, for me for it's sure. listen mo moving across country uh, it, it's difficult. And so for some people, it's going to be more advantageous to be there. And so again, faculty's uh, amazing there. Let me ask you this, because I had a personal struggle with this when, and uh, again, we were going for some advice, I guess, for people who are in their educational journey. Um, so I have my, my, my bachelor's degrees in biblical studies. And when I went uh, to Talbot and just got dropped into the philosophical world it it was like a shock because i felt like i was learning a completely new language words didn't have the meanings that i thought they did right uh did did you have a similar experience to that and then how did you navigate through that uh again giving some advice from people who are you know who get a bachelor's degree and then the lord changes their lives or puts a new passion in their hearts to move in a completely different direction yeah that's a great question. We were just talking to a student uh, right before I came on here. We were geeking out in philosophy with the, the, the group of students here, but one was an English background. And I'm like, I just kind of paused and said, you, does this even make any sense to us? And she's like, no, but I want to I I get there. It's okay. Yeah, for me, I, I, um, as, a, as a business background, I can remember taking J.P. Moreland's metaphysics class first semester and literally probably understanding 10% of what I was reading in his book, Universals, which as it turned out, I did my dissertation on that topic, you know, years later. And that was okay, right? And I can remember JP saying to me, um, just hang in there. About halfway through the semester, it's going to click. You're going to get it. You'll be okay. And I mean, it was kind of very pastoral. And that was exactly what I experienced. You know, you just, you just, I, I remember having to look up words, like you mentioned, having to write things on the margin and come to realize these are probably words I should have known anyhow, but you know, just as a business background, I didn't know it. So I would just encourage people, start where you're at. It's okay. Everybody starts wherever they are. Um, and that you can, you know, you can get there over time. And so that that's what I was encouraged by JP and others. And I would just say the same to, to those who are worried. That class gave me major anxiety attacks yeah. um, <laughs> on, on a serious level. I mean, I've mm. probably once after that, I've had serious issues like that. But um, JP told me the same thing, pulled me aside and said, hey, don't worry about it. You'll get it in about a year. And yeah. I did. It, it's It's just the truth. And so... Sometimes you just go through it, go through the motions, learn, and uh, it, it will be well. I mean, again, right. when we have individuals that uh, view this, and I think um, maybe we'll switch gears with this. Um, when you have individuals around you that view this as a discipleship 
sort of thing. It's not just kind of this intellectual endeavor, but they're guiding you in your life, in your educational journey, um, then it's going to be good uh, because they're actually caring for your soul uh, the way that ought to be. Um, so usually within the apologetics world, apologetics is done a certain way, or at least uh, that's what we're used to and, and what we see. Now, you've written a book called Cultural Apologetics, in which you take a, a bit of a different approach. Uh, so my first question to you is, how would you define cultural apologetics? Yeah, um, the, the definition that I get, and I can give you, there's kind of a funny story about how I ended on that. But the, the definition that I ended up with or that I use is that cultural apologetics is working to reestablish the Christian voice, the Christian conscience, and the Christian imagination so that the gospel will be viewed as both true and satisfying. And so in other words, we want to help people see that the gospel is not just true to the way the world is, right? That's the reasonable part. But it's also true to the way the world ought to be, right? That we, that we, that we have these deep longings of the human heart for meaning, happiness, love, justice, truth, goodness, beauty, all these things. Um, and the gospel message is satisfying in that way, too. So it's reasonable and it's satisfying. It's, it's true to the way the world is, but true to the way the world ought to be. And that's what we do as cultural apologists is work to show that in culture and in human life. Okay, so as we endeavor into apologetics, uh, doing it this way, uh, usually the starting point in some kind of a conversation, right? I know we like present our arguments, say, you know. Yeah. Here's the moral argument for God's existence, and then you go through the steps and stuff. But you suggest something else. You suggest maybe a different way of starting this conversation. Can, can you give us some advice as to how you outline that? Yeah, and it actually not necessarily a different way. Um, I, actually, I'm, I'm arguing for a broader view or conception of apologetics. Um, and it's funny, you know, I know we've sort of coined this phrase cultural apologetics, and maybe I'll, I'll tell you how that happened. But in, in many ways, I mean, we're all of us live in culture. We're embodied human beings that shape culture and are shaped by culture. And so in many ways, this is just how I view apologetics. And so I think if we follow Paul's example at Mars Hill, what you notice there is that he identified a starting point in this culture different than his own. And for him, it's in Acts chapter 17. It was this, this fact that all over the city, he saw these, these statues, these idols that were where they were worshiping this unknown God. So he identifies this starting point, this, this common impulse to worship that which is transcendent. And he uses that to build a bridge to Jesus and the gospel. And you see him do it in this brilliant way, right? And so in the same way, the proposal I'm offering or suggesting in this book is that we do that. We identify starting points in our Athens, the culture that we find ourselves in. And then we build bridges from that starting point to Jesus and the gospel. And I kind of argue for three different planks because I identify. So here's the starting points and then here's the planks. The starting points that I identify are, are, are um, actually Peter Kreeft has this great little book called Back to Virtue, where he talks about how God has given us these three prophets of the soul. And those prophets are reason, which is on a quest for truth, uh, our conscience, which is on a quest for goodness, and then our imagination, which is on a quest for beauty. And then if you put your theology cap on and you ask, what is the source of goodness, truth, and beauty? And the answer is Christ. And so I suggest that we have these three starting points, the, the universal longing for truth, goodness, and beauty, and they correspond to three planks that we can walk as we build or, or bridge as we build a bridge to Jesus and the gospel. So the plank of reason, 
the plank of the conscience and the plank of the imagination. And of course, I think what your question is suggesting, and it's right, is that we that first plank, the plank of reason, is a well-walked plank. And it's, it's where I think most of our apologetics efforts historically are, right? But my proposal is that we continue and we must walk that plank, of course, right? Because we're rational animals. But we're so much more than that, too. We're imaginative animals. We're desiring animals. We're moral animals. And so we want to use all the epistemic and existential resources at our disposal to build our case and to show the beauty and the goodness and the truth of Christ. So that, that's kind of it's more of an expansion. Uh, I wouldn't want to do an either or. Of course, we've got to argue. I mean, I'm a philosopher, right? I love to traffic in syllogisms and arguments. I'm just suggesting that we do that and then we do these all, all these other things too. And I think that's actually more respectful of what it means to be fully human and fully embodied people who have, you know, complex. Yeah, I, I suppose, uh, Mike, yeah, there, I'm not uh, drawing a versus kind of uh, yeah, that's right. uh, argument there. Uh, definitely, Because even in the book, you, you say, hey, as we're doing this, you're going to use those reasonable arguments, right? Like right. you're going to use, say, the moral argument, but... Um, is it necessarily the case that you start with that? I mean, uh, so I'm just picturing some kind of a conversation around the dinner table, you know, right? Like you're not going to pull up a whiteboard and say, okay, here's a three-step argument. You know, I've done that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, family. You could do that maybe because it's like, oh, he's a professor in the family. Yeah, yeah. We, we were expecting this. But, um, you know, I mean, we're sitting uh, and uh, say, uh, you know, it's after a movie. You go out to dinner or something like that. Good. And and there's themes in the movie, right? Like, um, and you share examples like this, um, uh, and then you grab these themes. Like, I have friends that are like Harry Potter fanatics, um, and and uh, there's great themes about like you know the hero or self sacrifice or something like that. And then that's that becomes where we start, and then it goes somewhere else. I mean, that that the starting point kind of maybe changes depending on the culture and the society that we exist in. Um, what would you say are maybe, um, I don't know, the top two or three questions our culture is asking? And that Our culture, mm -hmm. speaking here in the United States, maybe maybe Europe, that might be too broad, but uh, take a shot at it. <laughs> oh, gosh. I think there's only two, I, I think there's two basic questions. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of on the fly here, but yeah. I think there's two questions that are really the same question. Um who am I and is there a story alive that understands me? Hmm. Um, I wonder, so what's been interesting, I've noticed a shift in, you know, kind of how I, I go about doing apologetics these days. Like, you know, I'll travel around and do a lot of talks and often asked to do talks on the existence of God or the problem of evil. And I think typically given my philosophical training, I, I would come in and do like a, like you suggest, like you said, like a straight, you know, syllogistic argument and just defend the premises and things like that. And I started to shift a couple, a number of years ago to do some, I still do that, that, you know, unpack an argument and, and support the premises and things like that. But now I've begun with this, with two things at the front end that lead to a change at the back end of that kind of a presentation. One thing I say pretty quickly is, can you just for 20 minutes consider that God is better than you think? Right. Just for 20 minutes, consider that Jesus actually is the answer to all of your heart's deepest longings just to create some um, epistemic space to consider the genuine possibility that Christianity is true, because we're just told I think culture is just beat down so much that we don't even have permission 
to believe in some transcendent reality or the Christian story. So that's the first thing. The second thing I do, though, is I've started to frame, I started to, and I think Tim Keller uh, led us well in this uh, early, you know, a number of years ago, um, where he talks about drilling down to the question beneath the question or the intuition behind the question. So, for example, if I'm asked to go speak on the problem of evil or this question, why does, a, why does God allow pain and suffering? That's a great question. And I think I've been trained to answer that in terms of philosophical arguments. But if you drill down to the intuition beneath that, there's this intuition that something's gone terribly wrong, right? This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And that intuition is right. And that intuition is an echo of this divine drama of the gospel story, right, in the fall. And so I begin to, I've begun to frame these discussions in terms of, of all these competing stories. Is there a story that understands you? Is there a story that's alive? And so that question of identity, as many philosophers have noted, you can't answer that question, like Alistair McIntyre, right, his book After Virtue, like in chapter 10, this famous quote where he says, if you want to know what you ought to do, you know, you can't answer that question until you answer the question of what story do you find yourself a part of? Or Hannah Arendt, another philosopher, she says, you know, um, if you want to answer the question of identity, you can't answer that question by saying what you are. You need to say of which story you find yourself as the hero, right? And so I think a lot of philosophers have noticed this connection between this, this search for identity and meaning and purpose and this question of story. So I, I wonder if that's the question, either the who am I or is there a story that understands me? And those are really the same question. And then um, what I think the gospel story tells us, which is subversive to the culture, is that we can't name ourselves, right? We only discover our true name when we're named by another. And, and think of even like, and the last thing I'll say here, think of uh, the last words of Jesus in Matthew 28, where in the great com commandment, I'm sorry, commission, where he says, you know, go and make disciples. And then he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is, the, notice the naming event that we can't name ourselves, as it turns out. And so you have this modern quest for authenticity where they, you know, they're told to discover their true selves and name themselves and be all that they can be. But that's actually not the way the world is, right? The world is only God can name us. And that's where we discover our true name. So that's, that's my first thought to your question. Okay. Great question. Now, yeah, I, I, my guess would be, and just <clears throat> looking at this pastorally and interacting with people, I think there's a huge question of identity as well. Yeah. Uh, plenty, plenty of us are asking, you know, who am I? It's, so it's complicated from it is I am an immigrant Armenian um, who's spent most of his life in the United States. I'm also American, right? Like there's like I'm a Christian. And so it's, it's complicated. You know, I was sitting down with a, with a good friend of mine yesterday and we were talking about sports and um, American kind of the view of, you know, youth sports and stuff like that. And I made some kind of a comment about like uh, why America won't succeed in certain areas. And he started like defending America. And I said, mm -hmm. are you just assuming I'm not American? <laughs> you know, like, mm -hmm. but, and, and there is there, you know, and, and I, we're good friends. So there was no offense there or anything like that. Uh, but it's complicated uh, because, you know, what does it mean to be a Southerner? What does it mean to be, you know, from the North? And what does it mean to be the, from the Midwest? I mean, these are yeah. very complicated. America is a gigantic place. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and so how do we deal with that? How do we navigate that as Christians and the identity that comes with, uh, uh, uh with that? Uh, are there any good examples in like movies, uh, music, 
where some of these questions that you've at least thought about and, and looked at and, and can comment on where Christians can wrestle and they might be of help uh, in thinking yeah. about these things? Oh, man. I mean, so many. Uh, yeah, I don't even know where to start. I think that um, actually, I think we can be pretty general here. Look at the movies that we love. You know, look at the look at the stories that we love. My guess is that the, th the thing that we love about that is the thing that connects to the, the gospel story. Um, what, I mean, you mentioned Harry Potter and, and um, I mean, I think there's rich gospel themes there. You know, uh, it's sci-fi, there's rich gospel themes and there's a rich exploration of all these important questions. What does it mean to be human? Uh, and so on. So yeah, I think, and, and, and so the reason why I say that um, is I, I'm thinking of J.R. Tolkien. He wrote this, this little essay called An Essay on Fairy Story where um, he basically, he's talking about fairy stories and why we love those. And as it turns out, we love those because they awaken, they actually, um, they help us enter these secondary worlds that are actually more closely connected to the kingdom of God than some, sometimes our experience in the primary world. So it helps us come back into this world with sort of recovered eyes, fresh eyes to see that, that the goodness around us. I think that this, I think that what he was saying for fairy stories is probably true of all good stories. That the thing that we love is actually part of that gospel story. Um, and then in Tolkien's essay on fairy story, at the end he says, well, "What about the gospel story? Is that like one more good story that points to some deeper reality?" He says, "No, no, no. In the gospel story, you get the point of all good stories. And of course, the point of all good stories is Jesus, right? And so, um, yeah, that, I think that's my again my quick answer is that just pay attention to what moves our hearts." And then let's draw some connections to what moves us and awakens things in us. My guess is it's a pretty, pretty quick connection to some gospel theme, whether it's creation, fall, redemption, restoration, you know, any of that kind of thing. So some some people might be listening to this and watching and thinking, um, yeah, but, you know, there's things that Christians should refrain from. There's things that yeah. are just generally like uh, evil or even things that our churches might consider to be, you know, off limits or something like that. What kind of wisdom can you give uh, yeah. as we interact with these things? Because I think there's maturity levels there that one should consider, like, am I actually ready in my character, totally. in my maturity to deal with this, uh, with this subject? Can I actually listen to that song or am I going to listen to it and it's going to, you know, uh, impact me in negative ways? Yeah, I, I think that's a really important question. I love you even phrase the answer there. What kind of wisdom can you offer? I think this is a call for Christian wisdom, right? Um, and of course, wisdom is this great classic virtue of understanding the grain of the universe and living according to that grain. And so I, I think what I would want to say is that, um, you know, Andy Crouch wrote this book called Culture Making a number of years ago, where he makes this distinction between posture and gesture. Um, you know, posture would be like our um, learned stance and, and then gestures like pointing. And he says that our posture toward culture shouldn't be as Christians um, that we're just always critiquing culture uh, or we're always um, consuming culture. That, that was to your question. Or we're always just copying culture or we're always, um, uh, I think, critical of culture. He says we should gesture, you know, um, at times uh, when, when we should condemn or, or, or things like that. He says our primary posture toward culture should be that creators and cultivators of the good, the true, and the beautiful. So we create new things that embody the gospel and the good posture. And so at times we do condemn and we don't consume, right? We ha and that's where we need Christian wisdom. There are certain shows. There's one in particular. Uh, I mean, we could, 
that I think I know I would love. It was like a massive HBO thing, but I've also heard it's highly basically pornographic. I, I'm pretty sure I would love the story, but Christian wisdom dictates that, you know what, I think I'll just skip on that one, you know, so I haven't seen it. Um, and, and that's the kind of thing with wisdom, you know, it's it's a virtue, right? And and it's 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 relative to where we are in our walk with God and things like that. So yeah, so we don't just consume blindly, um, but we also don't have this posture that everything coming from the world is is 100% bad or untouchable. I, I think the truth is in the yeah. middle there where we have wisdom. So. Yeah, even even that, uh, that sort of a uh, response uh, could give us room to do apologetics, mm -hmm. uh, uh, specifically speaking about that show. Um, I <laughs> didn't watch it for a long time and then I ended up watching the first season and I was like, this was bad, I shouldn't have watched this. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I was at a coffee shop and somebody asked me about the show and said, oh, you know, the uh, the barista was saying, oh, very excited about it. And I said, no, you know, I decided I'm not going to watch that show. And he said to me, why not? And I said, well, I think it's bad for my soul. Um, and I got this weird response like, what? And so I went on to explain as to why I think it's bad for my soul. Um, and, and the way it, it could impact me. And you could tell this individual hadn't even thought about these categories. Mm. And it was a great conversation we had about, you know, nurturing your soul and not allowing everything to come in just because it's entertaining. doesn't yeah. mean it's actually healthy and good for you. Right. And again, even, a, I guess, refraining from certain things, we could use it in, in a way where we can have these very good conversations yeah. about, mm -hmm. you know, about God and, and how we should, uh, we should view things. You know, when you speak about this, I'm, I'm just reminded of Francis Schaeffer and uh, his view about culture and, and the arts and beauty and just maybe philosophy in um, the, the way it's done maybe in the modern world and then the heart and the desire of the ancient philosophers, even the ancient theologians, we would say. Um, how would those things be connected? I, this might be too broad of a question. Forgive me and if you want to shoot back at me and do it so I can clarify myself. Um, but it seems to me that the ancient philosophers at least had these very fundamental questions they were asking, um, where maybe that's changed a bit throughout history and the, the way philosophers are asking. What you're saying is that in our doing of apologetics, we can maybe even take it back to these original philosophical inquiries. Yeah, um, if, if I miss what you're asking, we can just re, let's mm -hmm. redo it, re, re, um, saddle back and help clarify. But um, yeah, I think that if you're right, if you look at contemporary analytic philosophy in the academy, you know, it looks very different from what we imagine Plato and Aristotle and the so-called peripatetics who walked around, you know, probably not, into, well, maybe in togas talking uh, about these deep questions about life. Um, I think what you see in the ancient Greeks, you know, so Plato uh, and, and really the, the ancients and the medievals talked about what are called the transcendentals. We've mentioned them in the show, the goodness, truth, beauty. Um, you know, these are the so-called transcendentals. Anything that exists has these these qualities and, and they're really um, controvert, controvertible where they're, they're basically identical or different different sides of the same thing. Um, and you're right. It's hard to sometimes discern that this this. Um, this rich appeal to wisdom and, and goodness and flourishing in some of the contemporary philosophy, perhaps. But I think that also, and again, I don't know if this is where you're taking the question so we can redirect, but also in, in the Christian philosophical community, I am sort of encouraged, like, I think there is a sort of turn back to a more robust conception of the good life, uh, the role of philosophy in the good life, 
the idea, um, if philosophy is literally, as we like to point out in first year freshman classes, the love of wisdom, that's the etymology of the term. And if Christ in Colossians 2.3, it says, are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I mean, there's a really tight connection between wisdom and our faith and, and truth and, and reason and, and Christ. And so I think that there, there's an interesting movement within Christian philosophy where, where we're sort of returning to this robust conception of what it means to be a philosopher, what it means to be human. And I think that's gonna benefit. Um, and I hope that my book, Cultural Apologetics, is part of that sort of re-embraced re in this more robust conception of the good life. But I see a lot of that and I'm, I'm super encouraged. I'm not sure, is that yeah. the direction you're no, going? No, no, that, uh, yeah, that's fine. Uh, that's fine because okay. I'm also thinking in, in regards to, I think it's common knowledge that uh, when I see Christian movies, let's say, um, mm. they're not artistically, I don't know, yeah. like fun. They're not good. <laughs> they're, not, yeah. they're not good. I'm generalizing. You know, some of them I think are are great. But, um, and when I look at history and I see Christians producing art and music, there's such a richness about it. Good. And the question comes to my mind as to, okay, what are we missing here? Because it's the same Christians, it's the same God, it's the same spirit. Like, if people were inspired by God to create beautiful works of art, how come that's not happening? Like, what, because I don't think God's the issue here. I think we're the issue. And so what, what's the disconnect there? Uh, that good. Okay, good. That's a great question. I think, um, so there's some good news there too. But I do think that for a long time in the Christian community, we lack, and we still do, but we've lacked the theology of beauty. Um, and so there is, you know, beauty has been held captive to, to culture, and it's usually used to fleece our wallets and to awaken those base appetites today. But, you know, here's the thing. We own that. Like you said, right? All what is the source of beauty? It's in Christ. We should own that. We should own art. Um, I, I mean, there's this view of art. You know, there's all these theories right now, and it's become it, in the 19th century, even the philosophy of the arts became kind of a mess. But there's um, there's a view that's being defended today that I think is close to the truth on what art, the role of art in our lives is called aesthetic cognitivism, that art helps us to understand the world, right? It has a cognitive value to it, that it reveals truth. That's the tr traditional view of the role of art. And so so the encouraging part <clears throat> is I think Christians are beginning to wake up again to the, the, the importance of beauty and the role of art in the life of faith and just in the life of, a, of just in human life and the importance of it as something that evokes the divine too and that helps us to see the world in its proper light. And so, yeah, so I think that we, we lack a theology of beauty, but that we're improving there. Um, and there's been some really interesting books that have been released and, and uh, actually just one that came out that I'm super excited to read that, looked, that looks wonderful uh, from a professor at Baylor on a theology of beauty. So we're, we're beginning to really wrestle with this in a way that's been absent for a while. Um, so that's the good news. Uh, so we'll let's, see how far we let's use that to s uh, use it as a springboard to talk about a project that you just recently finished, um, which I think you're you're trying to do that. Um, as far as I understand it, can you can you share about that, please? Yeah. So in my in the book, Cultural Apologetics, the book that we're talking about today, um, I kind of give this model for, first of all, how to understand culture and then this more that's the descriptive part. And I kind of describe culture as this descent into disenchantment. And, and by the and so I claim that we live in this disenchanted world. And, I, and what I mean by that is we, ju we just don't see the world in its proper light. 
And then in the more prescriptive part of this model, I argue that we can join with God and each other to re-enchant the world. And I give two steps. We, we can help, we can join with God to reawaken longing. And then we could, and then the second step was that we can return to reality. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I think I called it, um, yeah, maybe I think I called it return to reality. I should probably look at my book. Um, but that second step, I said that we do that in two ways. Number one, by for us as Christians to see and delight in the world the way Jesus does. And then number two, to invite others to see and delight in the world the way mm -hmm. Jesus does. And those two ways of re-enchanting the world, maybe that's what that step was, um, are two book projects. And the second book project, helping others to see and delight in the world the way Jesus does, inviting others to do that, is the book that I just finished. So it's a book written for non-believers. Um, it's not a book about cultural apologetics, like the book we're talking about. It's a book of cultural apologetics, where um, I take the reader on a journey, and we look at these 11 features of the world that I think point to something beyond this world. And I try to do it in, in a way that's reason that blends reason and imagination, um, you know, ideas and image, it's quest and story and guides and creative and all that stuff. And, and yeah, I've hired an illustrator. We're going to we're going to have images in there and we'll probably do some other cool stuff. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really excited for that. That's that's the project. So there's a question that came in that I think goes with this uh, from Peter. Uh, and he says, our local public uh, and school libraries are filled with fantasy books. This is the literary diet of our children. How does this affect their ability to understand the real world? Oh, that's a great question, Peter. Yeah, you're right. My kids are reading a ton of those probably books too. Um, how does it affect their way to view the world? Well, it depends. It depends on the kind of fantasy that they're reading. Um, so Lewis talked about, I'm sorry, Tolkien talked about the value of fantasy. And he, and he gave three values, and this will get to your question. Um, he says that good fantasy um, produces consolation recovery and um uh consolation and and, and uh oh man I'm forgetting consolation and recovery and the third will come to me so an escape yeah so so escape and he says that escape is sometimes heroic so sometimes it's heroic to escape into these secondary imaginary worlds why because this world is difficult and 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 sometimes we just need a break from it so if we can escape into these secondary worlds that can be a good thing if the second value of fantasy is achieved, and that's recovery. Um, in other words, as we enter that secondary world where we, you know, it's different, it helps us to enter back into this primary world with basically our eyes clear, where we're recovered, we're renewed a little bit because we found that third thing in that world, which is consolation. So I think if those three features of these secondary fantastical worlds are present, I think it can help us come back into the primary world and then see it with fresh eyes, basically. Um, I don't know, depending on the fantasy that, that's out there, I think that there's some fantasy that, that can accomplish that. You know, Tolkien, of course, Lewis. Um, uh, there's, uh, the, the, like, I'm thinking of, like, the Wing Feather Saga, which was for maybe younger teens, uh, younger, ki younger adult uh, kids uh, by Andrew Peterson would be one that functions like that, and there's others. Other stuff might just, you know be escape with no recovery and that's where i think it might cloud us so yeah i don't i don't know about all all out there so you you have um you have four children correct mm -hmm. um and they're how old are they uh two in college and then two in high school so we're, okay yeah, we're so you so the reason why i asked that question is because i have three uh, uh seven five and three hmm. and my son 
just started just like sort of falling in love with literature and, and reading yeah. and um, read this, I, don't, I think it's like 20 something volume thing where it was uh, the magic tree house. And he really loved that oh, because yeah. it would take yeah, him on this like time travel journeys into the ancient world. And he really enjoyed that. Yeah. And I kind of challenged him with the Chronicles of Narnia and he's read <laughs> the first one and he's on the second one. Um, in the midst of that, because talking about, to children about these high conceptual ideas about God uh, in this purely kind of philosophical sense, you're probably not going to get, uh, you know, uh, anywhere really fast unless your kid is wired specifically a very <laughs> unique way. Um, how can we use the literature they're using or the art they interact with, the shows they watch to engage them in <clears throat> apologetics? Yeah, I mean, for you know, first of all, the imagination is stirred, right? And that's always good because it's awakening longing uh, in some ways. We want to enter. So here's the thing that's so brilliant about Lewis and Tolkien. You know, they're writing these secondary worlds, Narnia or Middle Earth, and they have this theology of fairy story. And the theology is that they're awakening our longing for those worlds. For me, I'm a Narnia guy. Other people are a Middle Earth guy. That's fine. I want to go back to Narnia over and over again. And they're awakening this longing for these secondary worlds so that when we see the real thing, that is the kingdom of God, the only other world that we can ever actually enter, it'll awaken our longing for that world. And so there's some brilliant theology behind um, what they're doing in their stories. So I think that it awakens longing, and that's good, right? And it stirs our imagination. And, and so that when we see the real thing, we'll, we'll actually recognize it for what it is. That would be one thing that, that's just helpful, I think, about reading certain fantasy. <clears throat> the other thing, though, is just learning to make connections, you know, um, there's usually a hero's journey. And I think that that hero's journey that you see in all the good literature is just the gospel story. And so make connections to that and to the true story of the world. Um, and, and I think if we learn to be good students of literature and then good students of theology and make connections between the two, we've already kind of won, right, with our kids because we're helping them to seek to integrate all things under Christ. And I think that that's what we ought to do as we seek to create whole, you know, to grow people as they, sanct as, they, as they grow in Christ into whole people. Well, that's about making connections. And so that's what I would encourage to be intentional in that way. Do you think that uh, as a society, we, we long and we're in need of like this traditional heroes? Be I'll, I'll uh, explain this. Um, one of the things I've realized, I, I love superhero movies um and one of the things that kind of bugs me is the rise of these uh these heroes that aren't really heroes right they're, they're not mm -hmm. really good yeah. you know it's it's not the superman it's it's iron man right or, or uh, yeah. deadpool or something like that and it's kind of like you don't, you don't know what to do with these characters because um they're, they're kind of jerks <laughs> like in their persons yeah. they're not like like you wouldn't want to be friends with these guys but you know yeah. they are what they are uh, is that like a reflection of our culture? Are we in need of the traditional hero uh, that we've maybe lost that? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't know. I don't know what to say about the anti-hero. I mean, it could just be, um, I mean, that teaches us something too, right? Because there's parts of that that we're pulled to and attracted to, other parts that hopefully we're repulsed by. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that you know, the way that God has made us, if you think of man's highest good, the thing that, that we were created for is this great relational good. It's to be united with God. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of it all on the Christian story. Um, and so we only find our 
we only flourish ultimately in relation to another, another that that in fact is our maker and is our hero, right? And, and in one sense of that word. So I think that there is a kind of imprint already on the human heart to, to, to worship. And so there's, we have to be careful though, right? Because we're created to worship. Um, and so I wonder and I worry, like I love the Marvel universe probably as much as the other person, maybe not the DC universe so much. Um, I, I haven't watched all these anti-hero things, but I, I do get it there too. There is a kind of false, false enchantment that's taking place there, you know? Um, where we're drawn to these extra mundane realities, these superheroes, that satisfies that actual longing we have for God, but it's a counterfeit, right? And so if we settle for that, I mean, the Marvel Universe is this ever-expanding universe. It seems like it's just going to go on and on and on. There's an iteration after iteration, right? And they're, they're wonderful. We can, our kids can watch that pretty much nonstop and never actually engage with the true lover of their soul because they've got these surrogates, these false, these counterfeits. So again, we just have to be careful. And this is where we got to make connections. What is it about these stories that, that we love? What is it about these action heroes that actually connects to how we've been made? And if we have those kind of conversations with our kids, I think that these things are really great. If we just are satisfied by just watching all these different Marvel universes, well, then it's kind of an iron cage that becomes idolatry pretty quick. Um, and, we, we never, and we're never gonna meet the real thing. Yeah, it seems to be it's also a great place uh, because, you know, there's subgenres and people yeah. who are like each other kind of gather together. Uh, it seems to me that you see a lot of kind of skeptical, atheistic um, uh, folks who are really into the, you know, whether it's DC, Marvel or whatever like that, where, yeah, the Christian, again, does cultural apologetics well um, and engages in them. It's like, hey, what, what are we really asking for? What are we longing mm -hmm. uh, yeah. for? Here's another question, uh, again, from Peter. It says, in art, it seems to me that the artist is effectively a god. Has the lim has that limited Christian art, i.e. because of prior commitment to God being God? Yeah, another great question, Peter. Thanks. Um, I, I think, again, I'm just going to keep punting back to Tolkien and that essay on fairy story where he one of the famous lines in there was that he says that man subcreates in the image of the creator God, right? So everything we do is derivative in light of the fact that we image a God who creates. And so we sub-create. And so I think that the artist, um, you know, the vocation of the artist in the best sense is the artist helps us to see the divine or to peel back that curtain and help us just glimpse reality, even just for a moment, right? And then the curtain goes back. I think that's the role of the artist. It's not that they create ex nihilo like God does, Right? We, we always have a material medium in a form that we already have that's pre before us. And then from that, we can cultivate and bring something new into being. But we do that as, as in all things, we do that as derivative creatures, finite creatures created. Um, and so we do it uh, as a gift, right? Everything we have is a gift and everything we bring, create, and every new thing that we bring, piece of art that we bring into being, we do that as a gift too. So again, as long as the artist, again, if you're talking like a Christian artist or someone, an artist who is a Christian, right? I think that there, there's, and I know plenty of artists who are Christians and their posture is very much one of worship, right? That this is, this is an act of worship to embody the good, the true and the beautiful. And I think that that's, that's right and good and that we ought to be involved in that kind of art. Now, if you're right, if, if that becomes the object of worship or the artist becomes the object of worship, well, yeah, 
that's not that's idolatry in the same way we might worship uh, a celebrity or an or an athlete and, and that we ought not to do that thanks peter peter's killing it with the questions and i really like this next one um uh, is that an inherent tension between wanting to be the hero despite our failures or that we need a hero to rescue us um is there an inherent tension between wanting to be that hero yeah uh good okay if i understand peter and again great question um i think that there is so here's the tension i think is that we have you know god think of let's go let's do a little just a little theology here but go back to genesis one you have god in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth so here you have the god overall who is you know in goodness and love you know bubbles out all this this multiplicity and diversity of beings that have abundance and diversity and beauty and order and all these things and then on the sixth day in genesis 1 god creates humans right in his image and basically there's all this debate about what does it mean to be created in the image of god and i think that probably the the there's the base view the base meaning of that is that we're basically kings and queens priests and priestesses that receive from god steward all that God has given us and then re-gift it back to God, right? So that's everything's from God and everything will be re-gifted back to God. So that's kind of already our theological view of how to think about the world. So what that means, and here's the tension, right, is that we are creatures that have this agency, right? We have real skin in the game and there's some risk there. In fact, that risk resulted in the fall, right? Because we, we, Adam and Eve, the first couple, uh, decided that they're going to meet their own desires on their own terms and there was some great risk that brought in all all the, the fallenness and, and all that so there's some great risk with that agency right and so there's that tension but it also reminds us that god has created us to live this dramatic life i would say a great life but how do you do that it goes back to what we said earlier by locating our life in the story of god right if we want to discover our true name our vocation our purpose we can only discover that when we discover the true story of the world and we enter into it so there's where the tension resolves, right? If it's all about us and we're seeking our glory, well, then there, there, that tension um, is a tension, right? But if we locate it in God's story such that he gets the glory, the fame, well, then that tension is resolved, right? And so that's how I think about it. Um, and then, yeah, that, I'll, I'll stop there. That's good. No, that's, that's very good. Yeah, I think he was uh, also speaking about you know, the, the whole anti-hero uh, discussion uh, mm-hmm. in that we can resonate with that. Like we have these failures, so we resonate with these yeah, totally. uh, with these anti-heroes. But I think it's also, some of it might be that uh, traditionally cultures had these expectations, these moral expectations of, of living the good life and doing well. Uh, where maybe we we have a little bit of a loss of that. Like we don't expect people to live a certain. We actually expect maybe the opposite at times. You know, mm-hmm. people are hypocrites or something like that. I don't. I can't name the amount of times I've heard Christians um, say, you know, excuse sins basically instead of confessing it and and being heartbroken over it, but excuse sins and say things like, well, you know, we're all sinners. None of us are perfect. You know, these, these sort of statements, which I think are defeatist, uh, and and so. If we view ourselves like that, then naturally there's an issue of, you know, be holy for, uh, you know, like, like your heavenly father is holy. Be perfect yeah, for your, like these kinds of uh, uh, yep. issues that come to the surface. Um, 
what new projects are you working on? I mean, you just finished one. So uh, mm -hmm. what stuff are you working on? T tell us a little about the school and, and uh, the people you guys have on staff over there um, and, and why you would encourage folks to come and study with you guys. Okay, great. Yeah, no, okay. So projects, um, like, like you mentioned, I just finished that book that it's tentatively entitled 11 Stones. Uh, it might get a title change, but that'll be out in fall 2022 with Brazos Press. Um, I also just finished working on uh, a, a contrib contributing to a four views on Christian metaphysics. That's my technical work that I do is in metaphysics. And so I'm really excited to defend it, a view that's called Christian Platonism. And that's has to do with these things called abstract objects, but it's all technical. Um, you can find my work places uh, on that. Um, yeah, and then so in the next couple of years, I'll be working, uh, Dr. Ross Inman, who teaches up at Southeastern, and I will be writing a introduction to philosophical theology textbook. Uh, so that'll be in the works, but that'll be a couple years out. And then there's one other book. Uh, I mentioned the two sequels. Uh, I, I can't say much now, but we're but possibly there'll be another um, a sequel written more for the church, maybe with a, 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 a pastor, maybe solo authored, um, that's kind of helping sort of bring that cultural apologetic step down a little bit to, to the man or the woman in the pews. Um, yeah, so those are maybe some of the projects in terms of this program here at Palm Beach Atlantic University. Super excited. We just had student orientation today, like 20 minutes before I came on with you, Arthur, and just I just sense that God is doing something special here. Um, bringing phenomenal students. We've got 20 students in our uh, inaugural cohort uh, of philosophers. Um, we, it, so the degree is a Master of Arts in Philosophy of Religion. And so it has basically everything that you would want in a philosophy of religion, uh, in a philosophy MA. You've got metaphysics, the classes, you've got metaphysics, ethics, epistemology, logic, philosophical theology, philosophy of religion, philosophy of mind, philosophy of science. Those are all your bread and butter classes. Very excited about those. We're also excited, I think one of the unique things about this degree, apart from the fact that it's very nimble, it's only 12 classes, 36 units, all philosophy, is that it's public facing. Um, it's this idea of cultural apologetics on steroids, right? We're turning up the, uh, the, 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 the volume on this, this idea. And so we've got this public facing sort of piece to it. So we'll have classes like public philosophy, have a class on philosophy and literature that I'll be teaching next uh, spring that I'm excited about. Uh, we have a class on philosophy and technology. And so that's kind of what's happening here. And then in terms of the team, uh, myself, I'll be directing the program. And then Dr. Paul Copan, who uh, you know is known in, in philosophical and apologetic circles, he, uh, who writes a lot on uh, God and Old Testament and ethics issues. And then we've got our newest faculties, uh, Dr. Brandon Rickabaugh who comes to us from Baylor, uh, and he's uh, an expert in philosophy of mind and human personhood and, and human flourishing and things like that. And so he just anchors, I think, in many ways, our department. And there's a number of other exciting things. But yeah, come study. If you are, um, if you are interested in doing a PhD, but you, you want to come get a, a master's degree that's grounded in, in, in Christian theology as well. We'll come here for that and we'll help hopefully get you into whatever PhD program you need to get into. If you're working in the church or the parachurch and you want to just go deep and have a public facing, well-grounded base in philosophy, we think we can help you there. And then finally, if you're just working in the public sphere, whether it's a podcaster, uh, a teacher that teaches in a Christian school or a public high school, or has some sort of public facing ministry that you just want to go deeper in philosophy, we think that we can help you there too. So those are kind of the three um, types of students that we think we can really help. Well, amen to that. 
Thanks for the work that you guys are doing. Um, I, I can't share how beneficial my education has been. Um, again, it, it's been beneficial to my ministry and, and just what I do in my life. But I don't think any of that's really like I can compare it to my the way I put it is my soul, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, to the development of my soul, to, you know, looking at people and hearing arguments and being able to reason through it and be gracious in the process of that. Because a lot of times, you know, our emotions get involved and, and we uh, we get angered by certain things and people make comments. And and it's it's because of studying philosophy and I would say specifically studying philosophy in a Christian context. Yeah. Um, with Christians mm-hmm. where these virtues that God expects of us, um, uh, being like Jesus, very simply the way I would put it, um, comes out in doing that, in thinking about my own thinking, um, uh, about ideas I had and changed my mind and, uh, you know, developing the humility to say, yeah, you know, I believe that for five years and I no longer do. Mm-hmm. And that being okay, <laughs> you know, you're not like guilt uh, walking around with a tremendous amount of guilt on you, but a great deal of that has to do with studying the subject and studying with folks that that are teaching um, at at your school. So um, again, I I see the pulse and I see the direction it's going into, and I love it because um, also love it because you know Biola's philosophy department was always intended on that kind of a uh, vision to send people into different schools and to start different projects everywhere else and. It's really cool to see that God's using former grads from um, from Talbot to, to be able to do that. So, again, thank yeah. thank you for for the work that you're doing, and I'm really looking forward. Uh, I recently uh, recommended someone read your book, and then I, I think it was like two weeks later they're like, "Man, this is such an eye opener!" Like I'm viewing mm. how to do apologetics from a different lens. So, mm. That's uh, great. folks are folks. You're, you're making a, a impact. Uh, just to encourage you in that. I know you've heard that from other folks, and so yeah. thank you for the work that you're doing, uh, everybody. We are right at the hour mark. I want to thank you guys for watching this, whether it's live, uh, whether you're listening to this on audio or you're watching the replay. I always thank God for those who watch the replays because I think it's always difficult to to watch replays. And so God bless you guys. Thank you for. Um, your support, your kindness, uh, the comments. Continue to put comments. Always feel free to comment. We'll respond to those things. And so, again, if you have final words, go for it, uh, and then we'll end it there. Okay, no, just thanks, Arthur, for having me on, and uh, God bless to you and uh, all the work that you're doing as well. So Thank you. Thanks for this time. Thank you.